0: At the end of the chapter, Hebrews chapter 5, beginning in verse 11, there's an appeal and a warning. We read, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain, since you've become dull of hearing for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you. to discern both good and evil. In Hebrews chapter 5, the author is going to contrast the ministries of the Jewish high priest and the ministries of Jesus Christ, our great high priest. Both are human. Both have been selected from among men, verse 1, verse A, and, and, and verse 4. Both are appointed to represent people before God. We learned that in verse 1. Both participated in the offering of prayers and sacrifices. We learned that in verse 1. Both were supposed to ideally demonstrate compassion in verse 2. Both experienced the limitations or weaknesses that were brought on by being human in verses two and three. But only Jesus Christ is called God's son in verse five. Only Jesus is given an everlasting priesthood in verse six. Only Jesus is made a priest after the order of Melchizedek in verse six and in verse nine and then again in verse 10. And only Jesus cried out to God with tears to those, to the one, if you will, who could deliver him out of death in verses 7 and 8, not from death, but out of death. That is, he cries out to the one who is going to bring him back to life. No other, no other high priest died and came back to life and could serve as the high priest in heaven right at this very moment. And since Jesus has a greater ordination in verses One and then four through six, a greater sympathy in verses two and three, a greater sacrifice in verses nine through 14. The author desperately wants to launch into a full on, in depth Bible study of Jesus as our high priest in heaven, but there's just one problem. The Hebrew Christians were slow learners in verse 11. They should have been teachers, but now they needed to be taught in verse 12. Baby believers require baby food in verses 12 and 13. Mature believers can easily digest solid food in verse 14. The writer of Hebrews, whoever he or she may be, has brought to the readers' attention the catastrophes of unbelief in chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. The consequences of unbelief in chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. The cure for unbelief in chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. And the cure for unbelief is, according to the writer, a full comprehension of the person of Jesus, and the work of Jesus, and the sacrifice of Jesus, and the ministry of Jesus, but now... In the middle of his study, he comes up with a warning. In verse 11, he's going to talk about the dangers of not listening. In verse 11, it says, Of whom we have much to say, hard to explain, since you've become dull of hearing. The King James reads, of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. When it says of whom, he's making a reference back to verse 10. Called by God as high priest, Jesus, according to the order of Melchizedek. The expression hard to be uttered or hard to explain, translates a single Greek word. Many of you are going to know this Greek word. It has a prefix and a root word and a suffix, but the, the Greek word is di sur menos or menotos. It appears only here in the Greek New Testament. Many of you know this prefix, D-Y-S, dis. Some of you may have grown up in a world where you heard the word dysfunctional a lot. That prefix, dis, means difficult. And the word Hermaneo means to explain or interpret. And when you put difficult and explain and interpret all in this one big word, you have that expression, hard to explain, difficult to understand, if you will. So when it uses in the old King James, hard to be uttered, it doesn't quite catch the sense because that means it's hard to talk about it. It is not hard for the author to talk about it because that's exactly what he's going to do, but it is hard to explain. And so, how do we explain? And what is hard to explain? And by the way, hermeneo is one of those words where we get the word hermeneutics from, which means to explain or interpret. Biblical hermeneutics is the art and science of interpretation. So here the Hebrew Christians were having a hard time understanding the nature of Jesus and the subject of the atonement. Atonement is a thing of death, but the priesthood is a thing of life. Atonement is once for all finished The priesthood continues on. Atonement was accomplished on earth. The priesthood carries on into heaven. Atonement is for the sinner. The priesthood is for the saint. And so Paul, or whoever wrote this epistle, understood that Melchizedek becomes a type and a picture of the ministry of Jesus. Melchizedek has no father or mother mentioned in the Bible in the priestly sense. This means that his priesthood is different from Aaron's priesthood, which depended on descent and genealogy and lasted for a definite period of time. The writer is making an argument that Jesus, Jesus, Jesus is our eternal priest. And because Jesus is our eternal priest, he can come from heaven and he can advocate for us. His priesthood begins, not with the Bible and not with the first five books of Moses, it begins with himself. And if the priesthood of Jesus begins with himself and continues with himself and ends with himself... You can imagine that this is going to be pretty upsetting to a group of people who've grown up in a religious tradition where you can't get to God except by a priest. Or for a group of people who are willing to leave having a right relationship with God in Christ, or who are willing to go back to some sort of religious construct where you have to go to priests or go to people in order to have a right relationship with God. The writer, the writer desperately, he desperately wants to get to chapter 7 and 8 and 9 and 10 and expound the great detail of the meaning of Genesis chapter 14 verses 18 through 20 and all of the amazing things that go with having a high priest who's alive in heaven forever but he knows that there are people who who don't understand he senses that the reader doesn't get what he's saying the entire Old Testament seems to be one long commentary. Do you know what Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and Judges, do you know what they all have in common? They all claim to be, to say something that God has said. The, the point of the Bible, the point of the Bible in part is the entire Bible seems to be God's desire To be heard. Can you imagine if the Lord just showed up and said, can we talk? Can we have a conversation? There's some things that I'd like to say to you. Yeah, what do you want to say? Hey, I'd like to say how much I love you and I I want you to know how much I care for you and how I think about you every moment of every day. I, I want to tell you about how I've created the universe in which you're living in so that I could know you and love you and have a relationship with you and friendship with you. Hey, all of that's really good news. Uh, what, what's keeping us from having that? Well, you know, it's Genesis chapter 2 and 3. It's the problem of sin. Adam and Eve fell in that, that garden. Sin has separated us. And all of the Bible becomes a gigantic communication of how God wants to speak with you and have friendship with you and relationship with you. It's God's way of saying, I want to talk to you. And then the recurring theme is, but the people don't want to listen. And by the way, is it because God is not a gifted communicator? Let me ask you a question Do you think that God's a bad teacher? Do you think that the writer of Hebrews is a bad teacher? I don't think so. I'm willing to concede that there are bad teachers. I'm willing to concede that, that sometimes the teacher is the problem. I'm willing to concede that a subject might be might be unfamiliar or the teacher might be unprepared. I'm willing to concede that the subject matter is sometimes difficult. I'm willing to concede that it might be fraught with difficulty. And the writer of Hebrews could have at this point blamed himself or herself. But the writer goes on and gives God's testimony he seems to indicate that the problem isn't the teacher or even the subject being taught. In Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse twenty, it says, Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so you shall perish, because you wouldn't listen to the voice of the Lord your God. In first Samuel chapter twelve, verse fifteen it says, If you will not listen to the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the command of the Lord, then the hand of the lord will be against you as it was against your fathers in isaiah 66 4 it says so i will choose their punishments and will bring on them what they dread because i called but no one answered i spoke but they wouldn't listen in Isaiah 66:4, do you are you starting to get the message? I have something to say, I'd like to talk with you. I have something to say, I'd like to talk to you. I have something to say, I'd like to talk to you. But can you imagine God calls in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and the people at the other end of the line keep hanging up and hanging up and hanging up and God calls to us, he speaks to us and he so desperately wants to speak to us. I want you to pause for a moment. The Bible teaches that God speaks. True or false? Think that's true? I do. The Bible teaches that God expects to be heard. True or false? I think that's also true. So if God speaks and he expects to be heard... Is it also true that some of us, I won't speak for you, that would be inappropriate, but I will speak for myself. I sometimes fail to listen and fail to obey God and failing to listen and failing to obey God deserves punishment. But some of you don't really believe that. Not really. Not really. And it's evidenced by the fact that God speaks. And we say, what did you say? I didn't get that. Our ears are plugged up. Jesus said, hearing you will not hear and shall not understand. And seeing you will see and not perceive. For the heart of the people has grown dull. In the original language, it means fat. It means thick. It means plugged. Their ears are hard of hearing and their eyes have closed. The text literally reads, with their ears heavily they have heard. Sometimes when my wife is frustrated with me, she'll go, look at me, look at me. You're not listening. And whenever she does that, I have to automatically pause what I'm doing. And, I'm going to, and I say, okay, please tell me again. Tell me again. Help me understand. Help me understand what it is that you're saying. There's few things in the whole wide world more frustrating than when you're trying to speak. And whoever you're speaking to doesn't seem to want to Listen. And the Lord gives us the ability to listen and obey him by his Holy Spirit. When we receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior, the Lord promises to bless us now and later if we'll listen and obey. But here's part of the good news is that God in Christ has given us the ability by his Holy Spirit that we can pause and we can say, okay, Lord, Please help me to listen to what you have to say. In order to go deeper, in order to go deeper, we have to try listening. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 13 through 15, it says, it shall come about if you listen obediently to my commandments, which I'm commanding you today to love the Lord your God and serve him with all your heart and your soul, that he'll give you the rain for your land and its season, the early and late rain that you may gather in your grain and your new wine and your oil, he will give you grass in your fields for your cattle, and you'll Eat and be satisfied. I know that most of you don't care about the rain or the grass unless you're a part of the medical marijuana community. You don't care about these ancient images and metaphors that are being used. But part of the point of the passage is that everything that surrounds your life, everything that benefits your life, everything that makes your life possible and beneficial... That God is looking for a reason to bless you and encourage you. In Luke eleven twenty eight, 28, it says, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 33, But he who listens to me shall live securely and will be at ease from the dread of evil. The reoccurring theme being, If you just listen, if you just listen, if you just listen. And the writer, the writer, remember who he's speaking to. He's speaking to the person who is not convinced because of pain and sorrow and persecution and suffering that maybe it's going to be a much better idea For them to abandon Jesus and abandon grace and abandon the gospel and go in a different way. And remember the writer's point as he's trying to make the point concerning the reality of the superiority of Jesus. And so in the process of warning, he not only talks about the dangers of not listening, but the dangers of not teaching. And let me try and explain it to you. In verses 12 and 13, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you. Again, the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. We know as we read this, we say, well, wait a minute, you, you're saying for though by this time you ought to be teachers, but it seems to me, even though I may not look, know a whole lot about the Bible, I remember that in James chapter 3 verse 1, it says, My brethren, uh, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we, J- James uses the personal pronoun, we will receive a stricter judgment. James identifies himself as a teacher. We also know the Bible gives plenty of encouragement For those who are called by God and gifted by God to be teachers. It's a noble and a commendable thing for anyone to say, I would very much like to share with other people what God has shared with me. I've told you over and over again that two weeks after I got saved, two weeks after I received Christ as my savior, I started a Bible study at my high school. You know what I knew about the Bible? Zero. I hadn't got to James chapter 3 in the two weeks. I started at the Gospel of John and and then started reading other books, but I didn't read James. And I didn't know about the admonition, don't be many teachers among you knowing that you're going to receive a stricter judgment. But even then, I knew that God had called me to be a, a Bible teacher. Even... Weeks after I got saved, there was something burning inside of me that wanted to tell people what the Bible said about Jesus, about his love, about his willingness to save people and encourage people and and wash them and cleanse them. And so even in this admonition, when the writer says, for, though by this time you ought to be teachers, it should cause, again, each and every person reading this book and listening to this message to pause for a moment and ask themselves the question, has God called you to teach the Bible? And you might think, well, I'm not good at that. But I got to tell you something. Almost everyone here knows more about the Bible than most people living in this world. And in order to be a teacher, you don't have to know everything about everything, but do you know a little bit more than the person that you're teaching? In the Bible, if, it's call, if, if in your life and in your circumstance, God is calling you to be a teacher, then you should Teach. I've told you over and over again that I taught the fifth grade for two and a half years. And if you can teach fifth graders, you could teach anybody. When it says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again. The Greek literally reads dis, ton, chronon, because of the time. What does that mean? Some Bible teachers have suggested it should read for for by this time or for the time being. But I think the true meaning is obvious. I think what the passage is saying and what the writer is trying to say is after such a long time as Christians... You ought to be teachers. If you've been a Christian for two weeks or two months or two years or two decades. Then you've had plenty of time to learn the basics of justification by faith. Of sanctification by the Holy Spirit of glorification in the eternal state. You've read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You've read the epistles of Paul. You've read the things that go with being a Christian. You know about his love. You know about his grace. You know about his mercy. You know about his willingness to forgive people. And so when it says, but you need someone to teach you again, The first principles of the oracles of God. The first principles are a reference to the rudiments. The elementary principles. The essential principles. We might think of this as the simple elements that constitute biblical Christianity. What are those simple elements? That the Bible is true and it's the word of God. What are those simple elements? That the Bible teaches that God sent Jesus into the world, born in Bethlehem, born of a virgin that he lived the perfect life, that he performed miracles and raised the dead and that he himself died on the cross and rose from the dead, that he arose three days later, he ascended into heaven and he's seated at the right hand of of the Father. Those are the kinds of essential elementary principles that he's talking about and he will repeat in chapter six, verses one and two when he says, therefore leaving the discussion of the elementary principles, of christ let us go on to perfection not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward god of the doctrine of baptisms and the laying on of the hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment that jesus will come back to judge the living and the dead these are the simplest of the simple things that everyone should know Leaving the foundations... Well, here's how I want to put this. Learning the foundations of Christianity is wonderful. But if the foundations are all you learn or will ever learn, that's not a good thing. And so, in part, what the writer is basically saying is that their inability... To understand the Bible, or to doubt the Bible, or to depart from the Bible, has been because in part they have abandoned the elementary principles of the Bible. Ancient writers would use this expression to describe the elements or the rudiments. When you're a kid growing up, a person will say to you, have you learned your ABCs? Do you remember as a kid? A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S, N, T, U, V, W, X, N, Y, and Z. Now I know my ABCs. Tell me what you think of me. Not much if you have a PhD in English. There comes a point where the invitation comes and says... Part of the reason why I think you find yourself in the circumstance that you find yourself in is because you're not willing to go deeper. Number one, you haven't been listening to what God has said. Number two, you haven't been teaching. And by the way, if a person really, really wants to know a subject, I got to tell you something. There's nothing, there's nothing, there's nothing more powerful or rewarding than teaching the subject. Do you want to know about Jesus or do you want to know about the Bible? Teach a Sunday school, teach it in the children's ministry. Teach second graders or third graders. Teach someone who knows less than you. And you know what it will do? It will get you in God's word, and you'll get the conviction and the compassion that, that in that process of preparation that God has entrusted to you li- lives. Do you want to go deeper? Try teaching. Does that mean that you know everything about your subject? Not necessarily. But I got to tell you something. After a while, you'll get to know more and more and more. Someone once said, sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. Nothing becomes more true in that than in history. There was a man named Socrates who taught a man named Plato, who taught a man named Aristotle, who taught a man named Alexander. And Alexander went out and he conquered the, the known world. Teachers have an amazing, an amazing, an amazing opportunity. Because guess what? People are what change circumstances. And so in verse 13, when the writer says, For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. When he says, for everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. Here, the word of righteousness is a reference to the word of God. The word of righteousness is that word which God has spoken. It's called elsewhere the word of God or the testimony of God or the word of the spirit. Here, it's called the word of righteousness. And unskilled means inexperienced. And so the writer is once again highlighting the believer's relationship to the word of God. Spiritual maturity doesn't simply consist in knowing the word of God. And this is important. This is important, important, important. Is it possible for a person to know a great deal about the Bible and remain spiritually immature? I think that the answer is yes. And you want to know why? Because, the, because they refuse to allow the Bible to change their heart. They refuse to believe it or embrace it or live it or submit to it or honor it. You've probably known people that can cite chapter and verse. And much to your chagrin, maybe even embarrassment, they know the Bible better than you do. But they've never allowed the Bible to change Their heart. And so when he talks about the word of righteousness, I think that he's bringing particular emphasis to the person who's reading the Bible with the understanding that it's going to speak to the condition of their heart and the circumstances of their life and their real behavior. Milk is easily absorbed, and solid food requires health and maturity. Now, again, I want you to think not just about verse 13, but the entire book that you have read thus far. The alarms have already been sounded in the book of Hebrews. The Hebrew Christians have drifted from the word of God in chapter two, verses one through three. They doubted the word of God in chapters three and four. They became dull of hearing the word. They failed to hear it in faith. Perhaps some were listening, but not with the kind of hearing that led to obedience in verse 14. Instead of going forward, chapter 6, therefore leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, they were going backwards. And so there's the warning. The warning is that opening up your Bible and reading your Bible and walking with the Lord should cause us not to go backwards, but forwards. And so the writer calls them babes. And again, not in the 21st century meaning of the word where you go, hey babe. (laughs) By the way, is there anything wrong with being a baby? No. No babies are cute and there's all kinds of cute babies. There's your grandchildren and there's my grandchildren. And you look at your children and your grandchildren and you look at them and you go, I don't care who you are. You, you take out that iPhone or whatever phone you have and you show the pictures of your babies and you're going through the baby pictures and there's hemming and hawing and cooing and awing and oh, she's adorable, he's adorable, they're adorable. And and of course they're adult adorable. But adults who are infantilized are met with fear and suspicion and pity. It's one thing to show you a picture of my three-week-old grandson or my, I should say, four-week-old grandson and two-week-old granddaughter. And it's another thing to show you a picture of my 35-year-old son. And if he's got a pacifier in his mouth with a little bonnet and, and a onesie on, there's really nothing cute about that. There's nothing cute about a grown man or a woman who is infantilized. And there's something tragic about a person who never grows up. But how do you tell the spiritually immature who haven't grasped the basic doctrines of Christ and the basic doctrines of grace, and the glorious ministry of Jesus, and the fundamentals of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and the promise of reward, and the warnings concerning judgment, that there's more, there's more, there's more. How do you convince people committed, committed to turning their back, on grace and Jesus and mercy and forgiveness? How do you convince someone who says, I want religion and I want ritual and I want priests and I want sacrifice and I want traditions? That that really isn't where life is or where hope is or where growth is. Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus sat on the right hand of majesty. But now these people needed milk. The apostles were with them. And the apostles spoke to them. And the apostles were filled with wisdom and power and energy and faith. And they still wouldn't listen. And by the way, the apostles, Peter, James, John, these people weren't lazy. These disciples of Jesus were strong men and women. They were ready to sacrifice. They experienced hatred and punishment and persecution and imprisonment. When you read Paul's epistles, when you read the gospels, when you read the first few centuries of the church, and you see the sacrifice that's made and the way people experienced all kinds of hatred and punishment and persecution and imprisonment and how they would gladly, gladly, gladly sacrifice themselves in order to grow. You have to wonder, why in the world, why in the world was there even a group of people who would want to return to a life of indifference or apathy or doubt or even unbelief. And the writer of Hebrews, of course, is giving us in part the reason. Because they wanted milk. They wanted warm milk. They wanted soothing milk. They wanted comforting milk. And by the way, When a baby desires milk, are any of you offended? No, you shouldn't be. That's what babies eat. They eat milk. Babes don't have a whole lot to do. Babies, at least at a certain age, they don't walk, they don't talk, they don't exercise, they don't serve. I remember when both of the girls were pregnant this last Pregnancy, if you will, I, I would go up to my girls and rub their bellies and speak to my future granddaughter and grandson and say, when are you going to get a job? <laughs> and the, the daughters would say, look, their job is to be cute. Their job is to rely on everyone else to take care of them. That's the baby's job, huh? Can you imagine a baby going, Excuse me, excuse me, where do I submit my resume? Babies don't do that. And no one is bitter, no one is resentful towards a baby. No one cares that a baby wants milk or requires constant attention or or food or sleep. And by the way, when babes are sleeping, good thing or bad thing? It's a good thing. Babies need a lot of sleep. But there's something pathetic about a Christian who remains on the bottle and who sleeps all the time because the truth is the truth is that even though physical maturity may take a lot of time and a lot of nutrition. When it comes to spiritual maturity, time and nutrition can be accelerated and growth can take place in leaps and bounds. And so in verse 14, he talks about the dangers of remaining immature in verse 14. He says, but solid food belongs to those who are full age. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. He's moving from the realm of the physical metaphor of growing up of solid food and milk to the spiritual metaphor that comes with growing and maturing. Full growth isn't limited to height and weight. When we think of maturation of a particular young lady or a particular young man and we see them grow up to maturation, in this particular instance, maturation becomes recognizable in a spiritual sense by those who by reason of use have their senses exercise to discern both good and evil. The idea being that the mature person who is growing and maturing in Christ is able to say, hey, this is right. Hey, this is wrong. Hey, that's right. And hey, this is wrong. Hey, guess what? Discern is the word that is used to to describe the ability to cut a line. And so the idea means that you're able to cut a line and you're able to put certain categories onto the realm of good and some onto the realm of evil. The mature, those who are full age, those who have all of their spiritual senses exercised. The writer is in effect saying, you have the ability to assimilate solid food digest it and incorporate it into your walk with Christ. The mature are those who have their spiritual senses exercised. By the way, in the real world in which we live, we have senses, don't we? Taste, hearing, sight, smell. I think I would add another one. Taste, hearing, sight, smell, feeling. In the spiritual realm, all of those metaphors are used in describing a person who is growing up. As a matter of fact, it says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious... The Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Hear and your soul shall live. He that has ears to hear, let him hear. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened. The Holy Spirit says of Christ, he shall be of quick scent in the fear of Jehovah. Isaiah 11.3. What that means, Having he shall be of quick scent. It means... A living fragrance. Sometimes someone will come up to me and they'll go, Hey, what, what's that aftershave you're wearing? What is that What is that cologne you're wearing? And I'll invariably say, It's called, You Make Me Nervous. Could you just give me just a, a little space here? But the quick scent carries that same idea. In Isaiah, it's speaking of of the Messiah. It smells like the fragrance of the one who fears the Lord. The, The spiritual metaphor is imagine Jesus walks into a room and you smell the fragrance of a person who knows and loves and obeys and believes in the reality of who the Lord is. And and again, when it's using the the expression, the fear of the Lord, it means reverence and awe. It doesn't mean a person who in cowering, fringing fear is, is, is feeling threatened. People who cultivate their senses, seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, they experience a greater appreciation. I, I stopped drinking wine when, gosh, Gerald Ford was president of the United States. That tells you how long ago. But it's my understanding that there are people who can differentiate literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of different wines. Wines. You cultivate your palate. You cultivate what you hear. You cultivate what you see. Some of you know that I'm sort of color challenged. You realize that it's my wife who dresses me. That's why I always say, I wear the pants in the family and every day my wife tells me which pair to put on. But it's my understanding that people who work in art and in colors, that the human eye has the ability to differentiate quite literally thousands of different shades of colors. The whole point being this. That people who cultivate their senses, seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, they experience the greater appreciation, but there's another sense, feeling. King Josiah said... He sent the gracious message because your heart was tender. The the idea being that the Bible uses this metaphor, not only of just tasting and touching and seeing and and smelling, but a feeling that, that the person who's tender towards the Lord, the person who in sensitivity and submission is open, they're sensitive to the voice of God and sensitive to the presence of the Holy Spirit. The Bible uses another kind of a phrase when it says those who are past feeling, it means insensitive to the things of God. And so the writer uses the simple test of discernment between right and wrong and good and evil at the most basic level to indicate the process of maturation and that's one of the reasons why when you know a baby is growing up. Do babies have any sense of what to put or what not to put in their mouth? By the way, will a baby try to swallow whatever goes into his or her mouth? The answer is yes. Are there new believers who are quite willing to swallow whatever goes into their mouth? I think that the answer is yes. One of the ways that you know you're growing up in Christ is when someone tries to put something in your mouth and you go, what was that? That's disgusting. And you go, hallelujah, you're growing up. There's some things that should never go in your mouth. And there's some things that should never go in your heart. And there are things that as we grow in grace and mature and we recognize that they go into the category of things that are good for us and things that are not good for us, we can differentiate between the two. And so the Bible gives us warnings about those things that constitute the wisdom of God and those things that constitute the wisdom of men. Why in the world is the Bible full of warnings about False teachers and false gospels. The writer isn't simply warning people who have forgotten or abandoned the basic teachings of Christianity. He is not simply speaking to the person who can articulate the doctrines of Christianity. He's not simply speaking to the person who cannot articulate the doctrines of grace or righteousness by faith or justification or sanctification. He's speaking to the person who's grown cold in his or her indifference and apathetic towards The things that they once knew and they no longer care about. For the person who can walk by a person and they don't ask themselves the question, I wonder if that person's going to heaven. I wonder if that person's saved. I wonder if that person, if they were to die tonight, if they would go to heaven. Babies eat baby food. Solid food belonged to the mature, but in this warning, he is prompting a question that each and every one of us should ask: Where are you in your spiritual growth and maturity? Are you bottle feeding? Or have you even become sort of spiritually lactose intolerant where even milk is disgusting to you? Instead of going forward, the Hebrew Christians were going backward. Instead of going deeper, the Hebrew Christians were on the shallow end of the pool and the shallow end of discipleship. And in their shallowness, it caused them to doubt the Bible and what it says, and what it promises, and what it encourages. And so instead of going forward, they were going backward. And so again, part of this passage is is suggesting to us, how do we go deeper? We listen. Instead of not listen. We teach. Instead of keeping all of the information that God has entrusted to us, to ourselves. We grow up. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, it talks about growing in grace and then the knowledge of the truth. And in order to grow in grace and the knowledge of the truth, then you have to know about grace and you have to know about truth and then you have to walk in that grace and walk in that truth. The believer doesn't have to remain a babe for a very long time. We need milk for a little while and we need strong, healthy nourishment. And as we grow in grace the nourishment should become more and more important part of our life. And so you can imagine how frustrating it is for me, for the Christian who's been a Christian for five years or 10 years or 15 years, and they still don't know about the most basic things. Let me ask you a question. Are you looking for a painless way to grow up? Can you imagine saying that to a child? Here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to remind you that growing up in this world is going to be problem-free and painless. Did anyone ever say that to you? Did they say... Hey, guess what? You'll never be disappointed in school. No one will ever tease you. You'll never, ever be disappointed. No one will ever hurt your feelings. No one will ever be unkind to you. No one will ever isolate you. No one will ever leave you out of the group. You'll always be accepted. You'll be loved. Maybe even adored. Can you imagine telling a child that? I know some of you are going, my parents did tell me that. And it really wasn't a favor was it? It was a misunderstanding about the nature of growing up in the world in which we grow up. And so now we begin to understand when Jesus says in this world, you'll have tribulation in this world, you'll have persecution in this world. You'll have pain. The babe in Christ must be told and soon about stronger things, not just simply about repentance from sin and a genuine walk with God and obedience to Christ and discipleship in Christ and the recognition of the gifts and the exercises of the gifts and life and Christ and what it means to carry others instead of everyone always carrying you. If you're looking for a painless way to grow up you might as well give up right now. George MacDonald wrote all growth all growth all growth that is not towards God is growing in decay. And so we go deeper. We listen to what the Lord says. We ask and answer the question, Lord, how can I entrust to others what's been entrusted to me? And am I willing to grow up? Do you want to grow deeper? Grow up. Ephesians 4.15. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things unto him who is the head, Christ. Paul says growing up includes speaking the truth in love. All truth and no love, you blow up. All love and no truth, you dry up. But truth, coupled with love, you grow up. We grow up. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Get out of your country, from your kindred, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. In Genesis 12, 1, we learn that we don't just grow up, but sometimes we go out and we get up genesis 13:3 and he went on his journey from the south as far as bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning before bethel and ai to the place of the altar which he had made at the first and there abram called on the name of the lord bethel was the place where abram heard from the lord Beth-el was the place of worship. Beth-el was the place where he called on the name of the Lord. Beth-el was the place where he prayed. We grow up, we go out, we get out. So in order to go deeper in your faith, you have to go deeper in your holiness towards God. You have to go deeper in your love for God and each other. You have to go deeper in the knowledge of Jesus and in the will of God. Going deeper means going away from sin and going towards the Lord. A.W. Tozier said, Progress in the Christian life is exactly equal to the growing knowledge we gain of the triune God in personal experience. We go deeper in the knowledge of Jesus. We go deeper in the will of God. And so the more we know about Jesus and then we know more about what God expects, we begin to grow up. Paul wrote in Colossians 1.9, For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom And spiritual understanding. Because if you know his will with knowledge and spiritual understanding, you're growing. You're growing. C.S. Lewis said, mere change is not growth. Growth is the synthesis of change and continuity. And where there is no continuity, there is no growth. Mere change is not growth. Changing your schedule, changing your reading habits, changing your understanding, even changing your knowledge. Change isn't growth, only living things grow. And so the Bible invites us to a living faith. And so now we begin to understand in chapter 5, between verses 11 and verses 14, the writer is in effect asking the reader I need you to listen, I need you to learn, I need you to grow. I need you to go deeper in your faith. I need you to go deeper in your holiness towards God. I need you to go deeper in your love for God and for each other. I need you to go deeper in the knowledge of Jesus because this is what's going to give you the ability, number one, to understand what's ahead. And number two, to weather the storm that's ahead. In chapter six, I wish I could tell you it's going to be easy, but it's not. So pray for me after Christmas that God will give me wisdom on what to share with you from chapter 6. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that you're inviting us to go deeper instead of running away. You're asking us to grow up instead of remain babes. Lord, you're asking us to cultivate an appetite for those things that will ensure growth instead of retard growth. And so, Lord, we pray. We pray, we pray that we would be willing to listen. And that, Lord, we would be willing to grow by using the gifts and callings that you've placed in us and entrusted to us in the service of others and so Lord again we thank you we praise you that there's an opportunity to listen that there's an opportunity to learn and that there's an opportunity to grow. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.